So my dad passed away in 2015. We weren't talking and it took a month for his family to track me down. Before I ever knew he was gone, I started hearing from him in heaven. It consumed me. How is communication with the other side even possible? I left my corporate gig, studied with spiritual teachers on every coast, and worked with my angels to figure out the answers. Today, my mission is teaching you how to raise your vibration, shift your thoughts, trust your intuition, develop your unique spiritual gifts, and connect with your loved ones and angels on the other side. Friends, when you have these tools, life really does become heaven on earth. Hello, beautiful souls. Welcome back to the Angels and Awakening podcast. I'm your host, Julie Jancis, and today we are here with Sensei Alex Kakuyo. I have to start out by saying that we are doing this amazing four-part series, and not we, you are doing this amazing four-part series. You're blessing us with your time and just being here. In the first episode last week on Monday, you had talked about an overview of suffering and that when we really accept the parts of our daily life where there are suffering or where there is suffering, that we we create peace within ourselves and we lighten our energy and we're just able to release these things that we've been holding on to or maybe gripping too tightly. And I got to tell you, I've been thinking about this and this has been something that has been present my entire life. There's a couple of different things here. One, when I was younger, my mom would say, like, we can't afford different things, but I will clean for you to show you my love. So she always like made the bed and she did everything. And yet it caused her a lot of suffering to have to do all of that and not have us help out. And I don't know why, but as a teenager or in young adulthood, I would look at different things and be like, I'm just going to hire somebody for that. You know, like I'm not going to do it myself. And this is so terrible, but my husband does a lot of this stuff. Like I have always had this mental perception that, well, my energy, and I'm happy to use myself as a wrong example, right? This energy within me, I've always had of, well, I'll use my energy to create and to do this. And my energy is better used for these things. I gave you the example last week, too, of how we had redone the house and I spent all this time cleaning, resenting the cleaning and thinking to myself, well, my time would be better if I would just be doing something spiritual, (laughs) not thinking to myself that the cleaning is part of my spirituality, is part of my peace. And so I just want to tell you what a profound impact your presence here on the show has had for me personally. And I wanted to thank you For anybody else who has that kind of mentality, well, my time would be better spent doing this. And I mean, how horrible is that? Like, I can't even believe that I thought that because those words just sound so gross now coming out of my mouth. What would you say to them? Well, 
first off, I'd say congratulations on seeing what, what, what was happening. <laughs> that That's an excellent example of right view, which we talked about last week. And I think what you're describing is a sort of rite of passage for spiritual practitioners, uh, Buddhist or otherwise, is that we find these teachings and they're impactful and we just want to do that all the time, right? And in Buddhism, if you want to do that all the time, there's a way you can become a monk and live in a monastery. Um, though even there, you're not always doing the things that people think of as spiritual practice. We have work practice in the monastery as well, where you're mopping floors and working in the garden and washing dishes. So there's no escape from those things, I guess, is what I'm saying. <laughs> but but it's certainly a rite of passage where we try to withdraw from the world and solely work with our spirituality. The Buddha did this himself. But inevitably what happens is we have to re-engage, right? So, and that's what our spirituality is. We withdraw from a short amount of time. Maybe we're meditating or chanting, and then we come back into the world. Then we withdraw and we learn and then we come back. And as we do this cycle over and over and over again, eventually that separation disappears. So I have felt that so much through doing this podcast where I'll go through times and I'll be like, yes, that episode was just so great. And then I have, especially throughout 2020, I've had these waves of, I'm still trying to figure things out and I'm trying to learn. But what spirit has said along the way is that it's okay to show people that as long as you use yourself as an example, because they can learn from where I do things wrong. And and so it's been hard, though. I think that's a hard form of acceptance for me, too, to come on to the show and just be like, I don't know everything and I don't have it all right. And and that's something that I've tried to get through over the last two years is I don't think anybody does have it 100 percent. Am I right? Absolutely. You're wrong in that. No, you're 100 percent right. Uh, again, I, I always go back to the Buddha. I always go straight to the source to figure these things out. And if I look at his life, he was figuring things out right up until the end. You know, he didn't realize enlightenment under the Bodhi tree and suddenly everything was perfect. Um, he still had instances where he was trying to figure out what to do in this situation. He still had situations that were imperfect where he was imperfect. And the way this is encapsulated in the sutras is in Mara, who is the god of lies and deceptions. So Mara first appears in Buddha's story under the Bodhi tree, right before he realizes enlightenment. He tempts him to give up his quest. He tempts him with sexuality. He tempts him with riches. He tempts him with world conquest. And Buddha says no three times. And then he sees the morning star and realizes enlightenment. And we, because we're human beings, we want the story to end there. (laughs) Happily ever after, right? But that's not the case. The fact is, Mara continued to visit Buddha over and over again throughout his life. And it's very telling what Buddha did. Every time he was tempted with greed, with anger, with ignorance, he didn't respond in an angry or a sad way. He greeted Mara joyfully. He 
offered him tea. He sat and talked with him and he just worked through whatever he was experiencing in the moment because it meant he was learning something. Uh, we oftentimes think as spiritual people that we should never, that we should be perfect. And if we're not perfect, we're failing. But what we see from the Buddha's example and how he interacted with Mara, uh, the god of demons and lies, the personification of his own greed, anger, and ignorance, is that he was very accepting of his own failures and faults and was joyful. Okay, I see this clearly now. I can work with it. If we don't have right view, we can't work with ourselves skillfully. So that's what he did. And that's what we need to do. So for those who are just kind of jumping on, describe what right view means again. So right view is the first tenet of the Noble Eightfold Path of Buddhism, which is essentially the praxis or practical application of the Four Noble Truths of Buddhism. So we have the Four Noble Truths. Life is suffering. Suffering is caused by desire. The way to end suffering is to end desire. The way to end desire is the Noble Eightfold Path. So we have that. And I won't go too deeply into that because we talked about that a lot with the previous episode. But that's sort of the philosophy of Buddhism, if you will. And then the practical application, though, what do we actually have to do is the Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood. Uh, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. So right view is simply us seeing the world clearly, understanding that suffering is a part of life, that it's inescapable, and then next seeing how we are causing unnecessary suffering for ourselves and other people and working to correct that. So in Buddha's life, that was him speaking with Mara and seeing the anger, the greed, the ignorance that he was still working with right up until his death. And this happens for us as well, where we have a sort of aha moment of, ooh, maybe I I should work on that. Or maybe that wasn't a good way to speak with this person. Or like what you were saying, where, you know, my time would be better spent on spiritual things and having to realize that, oh, taking care of my family is a spiritual thing. It's quite important. And I actually talk about, it's funny, because when I speak with spiritual practitioners, we all have these similar experiences. It's almost like we're walking in each other's footsteps. In my book, Perfectly Ordinary Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life, I talk about an experience I had working on a farm in Indiana. And I'm working on this waste oil furnace, uh, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a furnace. It was there to keep the community center warm, and it runs off of old gasoline or used french fry oil things of that nature and the farm owner takes me and the other building apprentice into the community center this thing hasn't worked since last year it's 40 degrees outside fix it and just walks out (laughs) and we have no idea what we're doing thankfully we found a manual tucked away in a corner somewhere and we're paging through it we're calling the company okay we need to clean it so We take it apart. We clean all the pieces. We're getting greasy and dirty. It's 40 degrees because there's no furnace that's working. And then we put it back together. Still not working. Okay. Well, we open up the the fuel tank. Oh, it's empty. So now we have to go find fuel for it. And we have to go collect the fuel in 50-gallon drums and bring it back. And we have, there's a hand crank. So we have to hand pump 50 gallons of used car oil 
into this furnace to get it to work. And it was very, it, it was funny because I'm there for my spiritual training. So I'm meditating four to six hours a day. I'm studying sutras. And, you know, in my foolishness, I'm thinking that at some point a light's going to go off and this is just going to become this holy, wonderful experience as I'm dealing with this hand crank in this furnace. And it didn't happen. It was cold. My hand hurt. I was miserable. (laughs) And I finally just had to learn to practice acceptance that in this case, right livelihood, part of right livelihood is just doing the hard work. This is not enjoyable. I don't like it. And that's okay. I'm just going to do it because it needs to be done. And then I'll have a warm community center to work with. Right. But we have this idea that spirituality is only found on the cushion or in front of our altars. And sometimes it's found in us doing the laundry or mopping the floor or carrying waste oil in 50 gallon drums. Right. I got a lot of Ikea furniture in my day and uh, that Ikea manual, man, that could teach a lot of uh, (laughs) acceptance. Yes, absolutely. Because you put it together and there are parts that are still there. It's like, oh, take it apart, try it again. And you just got to just gotta get through it. But then you have a nice piece of furniture when you're done. <laughs> so like we were talking about last week, you have the suffering and you have the joy all in one place. Yeah. Beautiful souls, I am so, so, so excited to announce that starting February 1st, for $100 a month annually, you get access to a new e-course each month. Yes, you heard that right. Friends, last year you asked me the best questions, like how do I awaken? How do I connect with my angels more? You asked me, Julie, which of your courses should I take first? We've simplified everything for you. Starting February 1st, when you become an angel member, Your angels and I are going to guide you through a journey of spiritual healing one month at a time. In February, we're starting with holding a high vibration and the energy of oneness. In March, we're teaching you how to build a relationship with your spirit team. In April, we're diving into teaching you how to trust your intuition. In May, the angels are going to show you how to access your soul's purpose. The rest of the year, we're diving into how to rewire your brain, self-energy healing and chakra clearing, inner child work and ancestral trauma, learning to speak your truth, sacred angel work, and so, so much more. All of this information builds upon one another, and it's best to start February 1st if you can. But if you're listening to the podcast and that date has passed, no worries. You can still become a member and we'll guide you on which lessons to view first to get up to speed. Some people have asked, will I have access to all of your other courses when I become a member? Over the course of the year, we will cover and expand upon all that was in the High Vibration and Angel Communication e-courses in the Angel Membership. However, the Angel Reiki School is separate and different as it helps you develop your unique spiritual gifts to serve others. While Angel Membership walks you through your spiritual growth and angel connection month after month. 
Each month, you'll get four new teachings, two Reiki healing recordings, and two live group question and answer Zoom calls. You'll also get a workbook, a community chat in Thinkific, and so much more. Go to the website The Angel Medium to become an angel member today. Purchase the Angel Reiki School Or if you just like to take the previous Angel Communication e-course, you can sign up for all of those on the website. But again, that information will be covered and expanded upon in the Angel Membership. Links are in the show notes. Friends, this is going to be the biggest year of expansion, growth, and healing for you. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of it. So today you're diving in and today you're talking about identifying our own sources of suffering and you're really going into a teaching on this. I want to give you a plug though, before we dive into that and just ask that everybody realize and understand that Sensei Alex Kakuyo is is really um, dedicating his time to being here with us for four episodes. So if you feel called, please honor and value his time by purchasing his book, Perfectly Ordinary Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life. It's just $9.95 on Amazon. You can also make a contribution to him for his work today through his website. It's called thesameoldzen.com. Again, that's thesameoldzen.com. And we'll have all of that information, all of those links right there for you to easily click within the show notes. Thank you again for just being here. I'm so excited to dive in today's, into today's topic. Oh, thank you for having me. I I enjoy our conversations very much. Uh, My name is Sensei Alex Kakuyo, and the title of today's talk is Identifying Sources of Suffering in Our Lives. So in Buddhism, we have a teaching called karma, which simply put is cause and effect. If we throw a ball up into the air, that's a cause. And the effect is it'll go up in the air for a while, and eventually it will come down. And Buddha taught that one of the major causes of suffering in our own lives is that we as people do not see the karma of our actions, don't understand or appreciate the relationship between cause and effect. And the reason we don't see and appreciate this is our minds are filled with desire. This is why the Buddha in the Second Noble Truth stated that suffering is caused by desire. And in the Third Noble Truth, he said the way to end suffering is to end desire. Because when our minds are clouded with this thought, I want, I want, I want, all we can think about is the instant gratification. And we don't think about what will happen as a result of us getting what we want, or not getting what we want, or simply striving to get what we want. So for example, when we throw a ball up in the air, if we're not there to catch it, it may fall and injure someone. It may damage a piece of furniture in the house. So it's very important that if we're throwing a baseball, let's say, that we understand that just because we want to throw a baseball, maybe it's not the right thing to do. If we're inside, Maybe we should go outside. 
if there are lots of people around before we throw the ball, maybe we should tell them we're throwing the ball or make sure that we're throwing it in a direction where it won't hit anyone. So this isn't to say necessarily that we shouldn't throw baseballs, simply that we should work skillfully with our desire to throw the baseball. And obviously this is a simplistic example, but it's an example that when we expand it out, goes to every part of our life. We are filled with desires. It's a natural part of being a human being. And our job as spiritual practitioners is to examine each one of our desires individually, see which ones cause harm, and then figure out how we're going to work with them skillfully. So maybe we have a desire that's so damaging that we extricate it from our lives altogether. We abstain from it. Maybe we have a desire that is somewhat damaging, but it's something we just have to do. So instead, we learn to work with it skillfully. An example of this would be if we're hungry. Now, obviously, eating causes suffering. You know, plants, animals, etc., have to die for us to get food. But it also causes suffering for ourselves if we don't eat and we allow ourselves to starve. Buddha learned this himself when he was a practicing ascetic. So what we do is we deal with our desire to eat skillfully. Uh, maybe we eat particular foods that cause less suffering for the world than others. Maybe we try to eat nutritious foods that are healthy for our body. So this is a type of desire that we don't get rid of altogether because it's necessary for us to live, but we work with it in a skillful manner. And then there are other sources of suffering, other desires that maybe we can't work with skillfully and we can't get rid of and we just have to accept that it is what it is. So for example, I have a cat who uses a litter box and I desire to not have to clean his litter box. <laughs> it's unpleasant. However, he is a cat and cats use the litter box. So my desire is never going to be fulfilled and I just have to learn to accept that. It just, it is what it is. So those are three ways that we deal with the des our desires. We either get rid of them, we work with them skillfully, or we simply accept that they'll never be met. But the key to this first is we have to practice right view, and right view is what allows us to see the karma of our actions more clearly. So we can do this in our own interactions with ourselves, but we can also do this with other people. Now, in the Noble Eightfold Path, after right view, there's right intention, which is where we see the world and we make a choice that we're going to try to remove as much suffering from the world as we can, understanding that we'll never get to all of it. But we're going to do our best, even with that understanding. And that right intention then leads to the moral teachings of the Noble Eightfold Path, or what I sometimes call the compassion teachings, which are uh, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And what we're doing when we practice right speech, for example, is we're understanding our words have consequences. There is a karmic effect that occurs when we speak to one another. And understanding that, we're going to do our best to speak in a compassionate manner. 
we're going to use our words in a way that reduces or eliminates suffering from the world instead of causing more. So for example, let's say we live in a household where people leave dirty laundry on the floor. Now, obviously that's not an okay thing. Dirty laundry can't be left out like that. We all want a clean, tidy home. However, the way we communicate, hey, please pick up your dirty socks, that's what makes all the difference. This is where right view comes into place. Understanding that saying, hey, idiot, pick up your socks is not the same thing as, hey, your socks are on the floor, please pick them up. Same message, same effect. One causes suffering, one does not. This is the sort of uh, experimentation, the examination of our lives that we need to do. This is why Buddhism is a lifelong practice because we have an endless number of desires and we need to look at each one of them individually. This is why the Buddha, after realizing enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, continued to practice for another 45 years until his death, because he, a human being, had an endless number of desires that he had to look at. If we look at right action, for example, if we're driving our car, there are lots of ways to drive a car. We can use our turn signal and obey traffic lights, and if someone wants to get in, we can allow them into our lane or we can run stop signs and speed and scream at people if they do something we don't like. Again, same thing. Either way, we get to our destination. The end result is the same. But the first example reduces suffering. The second example causes more. So it's important if we're going to drive a car, we examine how are we driving the car? What is the karma of my actions to ensure we're practicing right action or right driving in this case? And as we do that, again, we reduce suffering for ourselves and other people. And the final moral or compassion teaching is right livelihood. We all will need to earn a living. It's part of living in a capitalist society. If we want to eat, we need money. If we want money, we need a job, right? And sometimes people make the mistake of thinking that if they're, they have a job, if they're not a monastic or a shaman or something to that effect, that they're doing something wrong. And this isn't the case. This is why Buddha, in his wisdom, included right livelihood in the Noble Eightfold Path. Having a job is fine, but we have to have a job in a very specific way. Now, in his wisdom, he did list five uh, professions that are forbidden for Buddhist practitioners. Uh, we are not allowed to sell weaponry. We are not allowed to enslave people or sell slaves. We are not allowed to sell intoxicants. We are not allowed to sell poisons. So those are forbidden. Outside of that, however, everything else is fair game. Everything else falls into right livelihood. And so, if we're not doing those things, we're practicing right livelihood. And the only thing we need to do at that point is take it to the next level. Whatever my job is, how can I do it in a way that reduces suffering for myself and other people?
So if I'm a cashier at a restaurant, let's say, how do I do that? So I can smile at customers and give them correct change and show up to work on time, which reduces suffering for myself and my coworkers and my boss. Or I could be very rude. And that has karmic consequences as well. Uh, now my boss is stressed. Now my coworkers are stressed. Now the people I work with is stress- are stressed. Uh, the customers. And it's possible that I'll be stressed if I end up being fired as a result of my actions. Same consequence. Either way, I get my paycheck. But how I go about my work decides the amount of suffering that I have. So if we do this, if we practice right speech, right action, right livelihood, looking at the actions of our lives through that lens, it allows us to live in a way that reduces suffering for ourselves and others and identifying the uh, aspects of unnecessary suffering that we're experiencing. So that's the talk for today. I hope it was helpful. Yes, so helpful. I've got some questions for you. So what is the first step in really kind of identifying this within ourselves? Is it to kind of sit down with silence and stillness with ourselves and say, what are my desires? But our our desires change. I mean, we have some big ones, we have some very small ones, and they change every day, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Our desires are always changing. Uh, This is why in the fire sermon, which we spoke about last week, the Buddha said the world is burning, right? And that's a very uh, intelligent metaphor for him to use, because if we look at a fire, the fire is always changing. It's always Mm -hmm. shifting. It's never still. And our desires, because they're burning, also are always changing, are always moving, it's always shifting. Right now, when we look at desire, a lot of times when people come into Buddhism and they hear the second noble truth, suffering is caused by desire, they make the mistake of thinking, well, I need to eliminate all desire from my life. And that's a mistake, because if we eliminate all desire, we'd have no desire to realize enlightenment. We wouldn't practice spirituality. But if we look at a fire, a campfire, let's say, there is a skillful way of dealing with it. If we jump into the flames or try to grab onto them will be burned, right? And that's uh, that's hedonism. Buddha had that experience when he was growing up in the palace as a spoiled rich kid, and he had all the all the sex and all the wealth and all the food that he could absolutely ever desire. But on the flip side, there's asceticism, where we try to get away from the fire completely. And Buddha tried that as well, and he almost starved to death because he wasn't feeding himself or bathing or wearing clothes. And he had to be rescued by the milkmaid, Sujata, who we spoke about last week. But if we work with our desires skillfully, in the same way we work skillfully with the campfire, what happens? Now we're close enough that it keeps us warm and alive, but not so close that it burns us. And we have to study the fire at all times. We have to keep track of it. You know, when I was in the Boy Scouts, we were always taught you never leave a fire unattended because then it could blow up and start a, uh, a forest fire. Or on the flip side, maybe it just goes out completely and now you don't have any warmth. So there's always someone watching the fire. In the same way, we have to watch the fire of our desirous mind and learn to work with it in a skillful way, work with our desires so they keep us warm, they keep us alive, but not grab onto them so closely that they burn ourselves and our loved ones.
So one of the things that has been like heavy on my heart since I started my spiritual practice is the fact that, you know, we might not have slavery today as we thought of it 200, 300 years ago, but I don't know who is making my clothes. I don't know who is picking my food in the field. I don't know, you know, the suffering that is caused by me purchasing the sweatshirt that I'm wearing when somebody in a different country made it for 20 cents and I am paying $50 for it now. And the materials and how they were used are poisoning the rivers where these people are working in different countries. I could say that for every thing inside my home, the the pillow that I got at the superstore, the couch that I have, there are so many different things. How do we purchase things today and try and reduce suffering at the same time? Sure, absolutely. And this is a wonderful question. I once heard it said that there's no moral consumption in a capitalist system, (laughs) meaning that no matter what we do, there's some sort of suffering or oppression attached to it. And and this is true. Buddha realized this 2,600 years ago when uh, he stated the first noble truth, which states life is suffering. And it's something that we have to be willing to work with to improve, but also something that we have to accept that we'll never be perfect at. I remember my first, when I first started practicing Buddhism and I made the decision to stop eating meat. And I was, felt really good about that, that I'm ending suffering for all these animals. And, you know, and then I looked deeper into it and I realized, well, there are also animals that are killed harvesting vegetables that I'm eating, right? So then I thought, well, I'll work with that and I'll only buy food that's grown locally. But then I go to the grocery store and I find out all the vegetables I'm purchasing are coming from across the country or sometimes across the world. And there's all these fumes are being put into the air because of you know the vegetables I'm eating. And long story short, it got to the point I felt like I couldn't eat anything. <laughs> Because there was some form of suffering attached to every item that I wanted to purchase for food, for consumption. And even if I were to grow my own food in my own garden, you know, there are worms and there's bacteria in the soil and there are insects that will eat the, eat the vegetables. So what if I use pesticides? And Long story short, there was a moment of paralysis. And then thankfully, I spoke with one of my teachers at the time, and he listened as I was commiserating the suffering of the world. And then he got this small smile on his face and said, just do the best you can. And that was such an impactful teaching. It it was so wonderful for me. Um, the, the same teacher, actually, his name is uh, Pope Sal Link Rhodes. He teaches at the Indianapolis Zen Center in Indianapolis, uh, or in, yeah, Indianapolis, Indiana. I'll tell one more story and then I'll get to the point. I was doing work practice uh, in the Zen Center and he, I was helping to remove some carpet from the, uh, the stairs because we were going to just have the, the wood floor underneath. 
And long story short, I was doing it incorrectly. And I was actually doing some damage to the stairs. And he came over and he saw what I had done. And I saw his face go through every emotion imaginable. He was sad, then he was angry. And then finally, I just saw acceptance. It's sort of like, <sighs> come over his face. And finally, he looks at me. He takes the tools. He shows me the correct way to remove the carpet from the uh, stairs so that it won't cause harm. And he says something that I'll never forget. He said, there are many ways to do it, but some ways hurt less than others. And when it comes to really anything in life, but especially when it comes to our consumption in a capitalist system, there are many ways to do it but some ways hurt less than others. And we have to understand that no way will hurt zero. You know, there will always be some negative effect to what we're doing. That's just how the world is made. But if we simply do our best and try to find ways that hurt less than others, then that means we're walking the Dharma path and we're making life better as best we can for ourselves and other people. That's that's perfect. I'm wondering, you know, there's been a lot of talk in 2020 about um, saviorism, right? And how it's bad to, you know, white saviorism. And I'm wondering if you can, and if you can't, it's totally fine. But I wonder if you can talk to the point of compassion versus saviorism. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I think in spirituality, it's very easy to fall into this sort of savior mentality that, you know, in Buddhism, you know, we have the bodhisattva vows, you know, beings are endless, I vow to save them all. So we are, there is a savior component to this. However, that's very far down the road. We, we don't start with that. We start with right view right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, etc. Uh, Buddha was very specific in saying that we should look at ourselves first and deal with our own trauma and our own suffering and our own pain before we try to save anyone else. And he did that very, and he did this in his own life, in fact, you know, after he left the palace and decided he wanted to walk a spiritual path. He engaged in six years of training before he said a single word to anyone else in the way of teaching. And then even as he was teaching other people, he was still engaging in his own practice. Now, what happens for people who are walking the spiritual path, and I see this in Buddhism as well as all traditions, is we want to skip right to the end. We don't want to sit under the Bodhi tree. We just want to be enlightened. We don't want to walk the Dharma path and practice Dharma. We just want to teach, right? And we, we, we want to save all sentient beings, but we don't want to save ourselves because that's dirty work and that's messy. And it, it's really hard to look at ourselves and say, this is something I need to change. But it's very easy to say, well, this person over there, they need to change this. And I actually... I, I get this a lot. I get talks and someone comes to me after the talk and say, you know, my mother-in-law, she really needs this. And I'm like, well, maybe you can learn it. And then once you learn it, 
and work on your own stuff, you can teach your mother-in-law, which you've learned, <laughs> which is kind of my kind and considerate way of saying, start with yourself first. And, and that's important because if we don't have that, we generally end up causing more harm than good. Uh, as I spoke about last week, there are two components to the teaching. There's the wisdom piece, and then there's the compassion piece. And we start with the wisdom first, because the wisdom piece is us working on our own stuff. That's us doing our own practice, our own meditation, our own chanting, you know, our own prostrations before the altar, our own repentance for our own failings. And then we get into the compassion piece of, okay, how can I bring this out into the world? Again, Buddha was very specific and very wise in how he gave us the teaching. There's a reason that we start with the Four Noble Truths, right? Because we're dealing with our own suffering and the suffering we create in our own lives. And then we get in Noble Eightfold Path, it's right view and right intention. And then before that, the wisdom teachings. And before we get into the meditation piece and the enlightenment piece that everyone loves to talk about, that's so fun and sexy and exciting, we have the moral teachings, the compassion teachings, right view, or sorry, right speech, right action, right livelihood. What am I doing? Don't save anyone else. Save me first. Figure out my own stuff. Then we can talk to other people. Then we can work with other people. But first, we have to work with our own selves. And then what happens is like you do, like I do, we can speak from our own experience and say, this is what happened. This is how I worked through it. This is what the Buddha did. He used his own life as an example. He talked about his own experiences in his discourses. And that's how he was a savior. Not from wagging his finger and saying, do this, do that. But go walk in the path himself. Having these experiences, having these trials, sort of etching out the own problems, the own suffering, the own impurities from his own life. And then saying, hey, this is what worked for me. Maybe it'll work for you as well. And I think that that really summarizes in 2021 where we need to start with our healing and coming together as a collective is focusing on our individual being and going deeper within ourselves and asking ourselves these questions. And, uh, only by doing that can we really understand other beings, right? Sure, absolutely. Because in Buddhism, we are given the teaching of oneness, which essentially says that we are all leaves on a single tree. So you are separate from me, but at the same time, we're both human beings and we have similar experiences. So just like the teachings of Buddha that happened 2,600 years are still relevant today because he was a human being. If I work through my own suffering and my own stuff, then now I have the things I need to teach other people because we've had similar experiences. Not the same, but close enough that I'm going to say something that I dealt with in my life that you've also dealt with. And now we both can learn. 
You know, I've got a question for you, and it's a short, simple question, but I feel like my own ignorance in asking it. Um, you know, I grew up Catholic and then Christian when my parents divorced. And in those religions, there's a church that you go to and um, you have like a pastor or a priest that gets up and talks every Sunday. And I was wondering, like in Buddhist culture, are there Buddhist places where you can go and and hear people talk, senseis talk? How does that work? Sure, absolutely. We, we certainly have temples um, where you can go and you can practice with the community. Uh, the Sangha or community is one of the three treasures of Buddhism. The other two being the Buddha and the Dharma. So what happens is you can go to this place. Generally, there is a teacher or group of teachers who are coordinating uh, the practice period, the liturgy. And it varies depending on the tradition. But you can go there and you'll do some prostrations. You'll do some chanting. uh, You'll do some meditation. And then you'll hear a talk from one of the teachers. Then afterwards, you can ask questions. So. If anyone is wanting to practice with a group, uh, it's hard now because of COVID, but just a simple Google search and you can find temples in your area. And if they're not doing in-person teachings anymore, they're probably doing them online and you can practice with the community that way. Uh, The flip side of that is that I find that our lives can also be an excellent uh, opportunity for teaching. I, I often tell people that their job is their their sangha or their practice community, because that's another place where you go every day. And if you have a job and you have bills to pay, you probably go there quite a bit and you can't leave. <laughs> or you can leave obviously, but I think you get what I'm getting at. So our coworkers become our practice community, whether we want them to be or not. So working in our livelihood can also be a very important spiritual practice. And again, as long as we're not practicing the five forbidden professions, uh, animal Mm -hmm. butchery, slavery, the sale of poisons, the sale of intoxicants, or weapon stealing, as long as we're not doing one of those things, then our job can be an excellent source of spiritual practice. And a really good opportunity to see our desires more clearly as they bounce off of other people and then work with them in a skillful way. So we can find a temple at work. We can also find a more traditional temple online if we'd like to go to a temple and work in person with a teacher. I have a nine-year-old and I grew up going to church and I I got so much of my spiritual development there. And it wasn't the religion and it wasn't the church piece, but I mean, it was an emotional education. It was a life education that was very valuable in a way. And we haven't taken my daughter to church for many different reasons. But I was wondering, like, at Temple, children allowed? And is that a good place for them to develop emotionally and their spiritual selves? Sure, sure, absolutely. So in Buddhism, uh, there is the intellectual piece, obviously, uh, but it's also very much a body practice. So when we sit, when we meditate, when we focus on the breath, this is us learning to be embodied beings because the body and the mind are 
or one thing. And so what we learn in the body affects the mind and vice versa. And part of that body practice is, as you mentioned, simply being in a community with other people and practicing and training with them and interacting with them. Uh, a temple, it, it varies, uh, but temples generally are welcoming of children. Uh, I would recommend if you are going to bring children that maybe you call ahead. A lot of times they have a specific day or time that's more geared toward children. Uh, you can almost think of it like Sunday school at church, where the adults have their practice area and the kids have their practice area where they're doing something a little bit more kid-focused. But even if they don't have that, um, generally the temple will be welcoming to children. And they'll just tell you what to expect and, you know, how you can work with the child, that sort of thing. That's amazing. Sensei, I am so excited. Thank you so much for gracing us with your time and your presence and just the blessing of all of your teachings. I want to encourage people to purchase your book on Amazon. It's called Perfectly Ordinary Buddhist Teachings for Everyday Life. We've got that link in the show notes. We've also got your website, thesameoldzen.com. That's thesameoldzen.com. And if you got value out of this, this four-part series, please go on over there and make a contribution to Alex um, because I know it takes a lot of your time to be here and to put these teachings uh, together in advance for us. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. Wonderful. Well, we'll be back with two more parts. So tell everybody about it and ask them to listen to parts one and two. We'll be back next Monday with part three. Beautiful souls, if you want more information about the new Angel Membership Program, we're hosting three live webinars on Zoom. You can join us Tuesday, January 26th at 3 p.m. Central Time, Wednesday, January 27th at 11 a.m. Central Time, or Thursday, January 28th at 6 p.m. Central Time. I will be on Zoom all of these three days at these times. Links are in the show notes. This is your opportunity to meet me, see what the program is all about. The Zoom link for these webinars is in the show notes below. Friends, this is going to be an incredible year for you. Friends, this is your year to put it all together. January, we are focused on manifestation. February, we're diving into how to raise your vibration, holding high vibration and the energy of oneness. We have totally redone and expanded the high vibration e-course with all new material. In March, we're talking about how to connect with your angels. In April, we're teaching you to trust your intuition. In May, we're teaching you how to find your soul's purpose. In June, we're diving into the chakras, self-energy healing, and how you can clear your own energy. July is all about rewriting your story. Friends, you have a story about money you are telling yourself. You have a story about love, about connection, about romance that you are telling yourself. 
You have a story that you play within your head for every area of your life. And we're going to look at how you rewrite your story so that it's one you want to live. Friends, in August, we're talking about rewiring your mind. September is all about ancestral trauma. October is inner child work. November, we're diving into a guide for empaths and really talking about what to do when you feel everything. And in December, friends, oh, December is such a sacred month when it comes to the energy of connecting with loved ones in heaven. Friends, December is the month where everybody calls me that I know and says, Julie, something is happening. My loved one, they're trying to get in touch with me. I know they have a message. What are they trying to say? And this is very different from the Angel Reiki School where you're learning to develop your spiritual gifts to serve others, but there is a way to teach you how to develop your connection more with your loved ones on the other side. Now, you can certainly join in the membership program any month that you want to take any of these courses. But it is so amazing to go through the whole year cycle. In fact, you can go through year after year and learn more and go deeper and deeper and deeper. So that is to say that the information accumulates on one another. And actually, this came to be because Spirit was showing me that manifestation, you know, when all of these spiritual healers come out with manifestation e-courses, they are so yummy and delicious, right? But really, manifestation is the end point where when you learn how to do and work through all of the stuff that I just mentioned, you become an expert at manifestation, but better yet, co-creation and really creating and building the life that you want to live here. So friends, I am so, so excited about this year, about your journey, and I'm so excited to go on this journey with you. Again, if you want to find out more information, join us for one of the free webinars where I'll be live sharing details about this program and answering your questions. Again, those dates are January 26th, 27th, 28th, and the times and links to Zoom are in the show notes below. All my love to you, friends. Bye-bye.